welcome to the Stronger Medicine Podcast, the show that firmly believes that we have a lot more power and potential over our own health than we're often led to believe. Today is episode number six. I've been speaking with Professor Sabina Brennan. Professor Brennan is a research assistant professor in the Institute of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin. Her research area is focused on the risk factors and impact of lifestyle on dementia, cognitive function, and brain health in general across the lifespan. Professor Brennan has had a very interesting career history, including a leading role on one of Ireland's better-known soap operas, Fair City, before she decided to go and study psychology at the age of 42, and then going straight into a PhD and specialising in neuroscience thereafter. So she is a prominent speaker and is the author of the book 100 Days to a Younger Brain. She's got around 30 short animated movies offering practical advice on brain health, memory loss and dementia, and of course, with this podcast focused on the types of things that we can do for ourselves to maximize our health and our well-being, I was really excited to speak to Sabina about what can we do for our brains. So we've spoken about a number of different areas that have been touched on in the book. And really, if you want to get more information about all this, I would suggest you go out and buy a copy for yourself. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sabina. And without further ado, I give you Professor Sabina Brennan. Okay, welcome to the Stronger Medicine Podcast. I am joined by Professor Sabina Brennan, who is the author of 100 Days to a Younger Brain. I'm really excited to be speaking to uh, Sabina today because brain health and how lifestyle impacts upon our brains, our cognition, um, things like dementia is something I've been really, really keen to to get on the show. So, Sabina, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, not at all. So, if I could just start with the the broad question, I suppose. Why did you write this book? <laughs> There's a big question. Um, well, um, I suppose that the, the book came after some other things that I've done around brain health. But um, I, I suppose the crux of the question is, you know, why did I get involved in this area of um, telling people how important it is to look after their brain health? And and that goes back a bit to um, the fact that I went to university as a mature student. And when I say mature, I don't mean, you know, 24. I mean 42. <laughs> um, and I did a degree in psychology and then I got a scholarship to do a PhD and I did that PhD really around um, how the brain changes with age. Um, and for me, psychology is about understanding uh, the relationship between the brain and our behavior. <clears throat> Excuse me. And during the course of doing my PhD, obviously, um, as anyone knows, you do a lot of reading and research of the literature. And um, as I delved into the literature, I discovered um just amazing research and information around um, brain health ultimately, but but around um, 
you know, lifestyle factors that can impact on how your brain functions um, around um, risk factors for dementia, you know, um, modifiable risk factors. So things that we do in our everyday lives. Um, and as I was reading that, just as an individual, I'm going, how come I didn't know this? And and then I kind of went, well, how come everybody doesn't know this? Because to me, this was really, really valuable information. And this is going back to, not I finished my PhD in 2010. So actually the term brain health wasn't even being used back then. You know, if, if you Googled brain health, sort of nothing came up really. Um, and I just... You know, I, I mean, I was working in the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity College, Dublin, and um, I felt very honoured to be there and particularly sort of having started so late. Um, and and I was I was looking at all this amazing science being done and um, it just kind of struck me that um, the neuroscientists were, were doing great science, but they were talking to each other about the science at niche conferences and in academic journals that um, aren't available to the general public, mainly because they're behind paywalls. But actually, even if they weren't behind the paywalls, they're inaccessible because they're written in a, they're written in a different language, really. Um, and I just sort of felt compelled to take that information and and share it with the general public. And so when I finished my PhD, the first thing I did was, um, uh, as anybody who's done a PhD knows, uh, you got to find funding so that you can work afterwards. you got to find funding for research. And I was looking through all the funding calls, and I came across one from the European Commission. And to cut a long story short, I got funding from them to develop a brain health awareness program um, uh, for across Europe, a multilingual program. And um, that's kind of what started it. And I developed um, websites and a brain health app and, and videos, which are all available for free online, uh, and began developing more and doing talks. And in a sense, the next step really was to do the book. Um, when I give talks and the websites, they, they give very generic tips of what you can do to look after your brain health. But what I felt um, very strongly about is everybody's brain is unique because our brains are shaped by our um, genetic her heritage, but they're also shaped by our life experiences. And um, so it's not a case of one size fits all when it comes to brain health. Um, you know, generic tips are brilliant, but I wanted to produce something whereby people could sort of assess their own assets and risks around brain health and develop their own bespoke brain health program. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question, how did the book come about? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's ideal. I think, as you've mentioned, and I've been very aware of this as well, just trying to have some common sense understanding about the things that you've written in this book is so difficult if it's not actually translated from the kind of ivory towers of academia. And I think your book I have to say it's done that incredibly well and I really I really like the, the, the way you split up the different chapters into actionable um, sections. So looking at the book, there is one quote that I just wanted to maybe start us off on and um, I suppose I'm going to throw it, throw it to you and sort of ask if you can kind of dig us out of it because <laughs> it's quite well, a... Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a depressing quote to begin with but um essentially there's part of your book where you say on average between the ages of 30 and 90 you can expect to lose a third of your hippocampus 
a quarter of your cerebral white matter and 14% of your cerebral cortex. So are we are we sort of doomed reading this? Yeah. No, and, and please, please, anybody who's thinking about my book, if, <laughs> buying my book, don't be put off by that. It's a good news book. Um, yeah, your brain is shrinking. Um, at least if you're over 30, it is. You lose approximately 2% of brain volume every 10 years. And once you hit 60, that starts to accelerate. And if you have a disease like Alzheimer's disease, that you know, it, it goes even faster. But the thing is, um, we're starting to realize that that, that, that loss of, 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 of neurons and, you know, brain cells and the connections between them actually is related to certain lifestyle factors. Um, and I would argue, and this is, this is sort of opinion derived, you know, rather than empirically derived, I would argue that this kind of atrophy that we've just mentioned, you know, the shrinking of the brain that's related to aging is described as age-related um, brain atrophy. But I question whether it's age-related or whether it's lifestyle-related, to be perfectly honest, because if you think about it, I should say to your listeners, some of the factors that promote brain health and, and, and increase the size of your brain um, are things that we tend to front load into early life. So education, uh, mental stimulation, um, physical exercise, social engagement. So if you even just take those to start with, we go to school, you know, as, as kids and teenagers, you might go to university in your 20s. Um, you might, you know, be stimulated in a job sort of up until your 30s. You play sport. A lot of people play sport, you know, in their teens and 20s. And then we kind of stop doing that from 30 on, you know, we exercise less, we, we, we stop learning things. We tend to, we reach a point where we can, we can get by and we can coast. And, um, I think that's what, that, 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 that's some of the key factors that contribute to this brain loss. So the converse being, if you actually start engaging with life again, engaging in physical activity, learning uh, learning new things and making sure that you're socially engaged and mentally challenged, you can actually um, keep pace with that atrophy. So maintain um, maintain the size of your brain. And size matters when it comes to um, to brain health. Okay. And just to be clear as well, the reason I threw that quote out there in the first place is because having read the book, I have learned that there's a heck of a lot that we can do. And so even in the face of such a, a quote, um, there's still a huge amount that we're able to do for our brain health um, as we're, as we're talking I, about. I suppose I put it in there to sort of say, well, look, this is what will happen if you don't do anything. <laughs> okay. So one of the th things that you have spoken about um, in, in most of the talks you've given about this topic, which I, I didn't know about previously, was this lack of correlation between pathology and clinical presentation. And just to be clear... Um, in somebody who perhaps has a brain that may have uh, characteristics of dementia on an autopsy, um, they may not have a very severe uh, sort of presentation or um, appearance of dementia from a clinical point of view. That, would you be able to just let us know a bit more about that? Because that was something I just didn't appreciate previously. Yeah, and 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 me, me neither. You know, that was kind of one of those things. I went, oh wow, <laughs> like this is really quite interesting because um, I, I don't know whether it's it's sort of, uh, you know, a, 
that we've decided that our, our common sense understanding where you would assume that if somebody gets a brain injury, you know, two people get a brain injury, um, you know, the same brain injury, that they'll have the same symptoms or that, you know, once people have Alzheimer's disease in their brain, they'll have the same symptoms and the same trajectory. But that actually couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and, and to the extent when it comes to Alzheimer's disease that um, we're, we've now started to distinguish, to distinguish between what we call Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's dementia. So we're now starting to refer to Alzheimer's disease as the pathology in the brain, the plaques and the tangles, and Alzheimer's dementia as the symptoms that a lot of people would associate with dementia. So maybe memory loss, confusion, um, word finding difficulties, those kind of things. Because there is no relationship really between um the degree of pathology in, in the brain, and indeed it applies to um, brain injury and also to stroke and also to diseases that occur much earlier in life, such as multiple sclerosis. There's no relationship in terms of um, the, 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 the injury or the disease in the brain and um, the symptoms, you know, the clinical manifestation. There's no direct relationship. So, um, for some, for, for whatever reason, um, some people um, are resilient to disease. And we call that resilience in the area of research that I work in, we call it reserve. Um, and it goes back to a study um, back in 1989. Um, a researcher called Katzman was really interested in trying to understand what was going on in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And so um, he uh, looked at the brains of people with Al who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease from a nursing home. He looked at their brains post-mortem. And then he had a control group who were also individuals living in a nursing home, but they had no diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And um, he was looking at their brains to see, you know, what's the difference. And actually he found um, 10 cases in his control group who had no diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, who had sufficient pathology in their brain for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but they'd had no symptoms. Um, and that's actually been a really exciting discovery because um, that's kind of sparked a whole area of research to understand what is it that makes those people resilient. And and the really, you know, hopeful finding is, is that it is certain lifestyle factors, so things that you and I can do. And I think that's critical when you consider that there's currently no cure for Alzheimer's disease. And so anything that we can do to prevent the disease or change the trajectory of the disease. So change um, uh, when symptoms might manifest. And I think it's very important just to point out at this uh, juncture to your listeners that having this resilience or what we call high reserve, it's, it's, it's not a get out of jail free card. Um, uh, had those individuals in the study that I just mentioned there who had sufficient pathology but had no diagnosis or symptoms, had they lived longer, they would eventually have manifested symptoms. Um, and in fact, what they would do is have a very, um, very catastrophic loss of cognitive function. But the point being, they will have had many more years in possession of their full faculties and living independently. Uh, and so we're talking about changing the trajectory of the disease in terms of when symptoms start to manifest. Okay, so Just, almost like a, 
a compressing of that morbidity yeah. into a much smaller piece. Exactly it. And you're much more succinct in how you said it than I am. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it is odd. Um, because I, I know having seen CT scans and you'll get something back and say, uh, diffuse small vessel disease and then people will sort of speak to patients and say well perhaps that's part of the reason why you have mm, uh, confusion or um, things happening with regards to your memory but now having learned that it's not necessarily a, a clear-cut correlation I'm going to be a bit more careful when I do speak to patients about that. Yeah and I, but, I, I think the thing is I, I, I think what's key is um, you know that that even if you do have a diagnosis, and it's probably especially if you do have a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, which can often precede a diagnosis of dementia, or even a diagnosis of of early stage dementia, that that um that that's that's a point in time for you to say, right, I really need to start looking after my brain health, um, uh, and that's critical. It's 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 not too late. The more that you can do to um to boost your brain health, the better, um, even if you have a diagnosis. Um, and and I, I, I think that's that's really key and important message to get across to people. Mm. And I think the reason why what you're saying resonates with me so much is because, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I, my understanding is that the medications we have for Alzheimer's dementia do not prevent or stop it. They, they do potentially alter the trajectory once you have that diagnosis but if you can do that uh argue potentially more um effectively with lifestyle then that's really really exciting i i think it's exciting i don't think there's been any studies that has looked at you know comparing lifestyle with any of those meds that we use but but any of those meds that are used they really are just trying to minimize memory impairment symptoms or whatever you know there there's nobody arguing that they're wonder drugs in any shape make or form it's just um it's kind of just the best that there is at the moment but i think what's really key to say to people is that um and i think this is critical i i think and i feel very very strongly about this um often when people have a diagnosis of um alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia uh, people give up on them and 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 sort of I, I i it drives me insane when i p- hear people saying oh they have dementia they're gone really you know they're not the person is still there and the person still has wishes desires everything and and i i think what can happen is uh, and out of kindness um people start to do things for the person who has a diagnosis they step into um a caring role that is um misplaced in that if you start to do everything for someone who has been diagnosed with dementia actually what you're going to do is accelerate their symptoms because what what they need is to be supported to continue to do as much as they can because that in itself will help to keep their brain healthy so if you are living with if you're listening and you are living with someone who has a diagnosis encourage them to do as much as they possibly can themselves and support them to you know do things with them don't th- do things for them um, because it really is use it or lose it. So if you think of someone with dementia in a nursing home, um, you know, if somebody is, um, 
you know, making their food for them, feeding them, washing them, washing their clothes, dressing them. They're depriving them of of that functioning. What they should be do- doing is supporting them to engage in those activities them- themselves. Um, and I mean, it's all it's all very well intended, but it's kind of we need to switch the way we think about caring for people um, by empowering them. And, 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 and it's really important that they keep on doing um, what they're doing. So instead of even bringing dinner over to somebody um, who has dementia, say, right up over, it's in here in the other room, get up and walk to it, you know, or help set the table, anything. Um, otherwise um, it will just, you're just accelerating the loss of, of neurons and of functioning. I think, what you're saying there, I've just suddenly started to uh, bring to mind some some occasions that you can see in the hospital where people can sometimes be reduced to almost a childlike state uh, because you've got the hospital gown on and occasionally they, they become infantilized um, in a way because things are done for them and they're, they're spoken to occasionally in a way which is a bit like a child um and perhaps that's an extreme version of it but i can see how it would be more insidious if it was either um, a long longer term thing or um, in a family or a care home yeah it's funny i gave a talk today actually to um down in a hospital in cork and it was to mainly allied health perfection professionals so occupational therapists uh, psychologists physiotherapists etc all working either in hospitals or in community settings and actually one of the other speakers showed a graph <laughs> a pie chart um and it you know it it was broken down between um you know amount of time spent in physiotherapy and amount of time spent lying in bed or sitting beside the bed and to be perfectly honest i think 99.9% of the time in these patients was sitting lying in their bed um, or sitting beside their their bed, um, unchallenged, unengaged, uh, not using using their functioning, not being stimulated, not engaging socially, uh, not exercising, not using their muscles. So uh, that that is the surest way you're going to accelerate atrophy of the brain because your brain, while it only weighs two percent of your body, um, it's a high energy organ and. You know, on average, you know, it's consuming 20 to 25% of all the oxygens and nutrients that's circulating in your body at any point in time. So it cannot afford to waste energy on, um, brain cells that aren't being used. So if, 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 if you're sitting and lying there doing nothing, well, your brain is actually going to be shrinking. So I really firmly believe that, that, um, you know, in hospitals, if people are in an acute care setting, that they must be stimulated all day long you know they really there needs to be conversation there needs to be engagement you know dancing movement anything anything except sitting around doing nothing Hmm. and now starting to think about what what differentiates people who may have the same imaging of the of a brain uh, with perhaps the alzheimer's disease but they have this different presentation and you've spoken about reserve resilience um and reading through your book i came across brain reserve and cognitive reserve i wonder if you could sort of tease out a bit about how these two things differ and how they contribute towards our ability to perhaps stave off or at least delay um something like an alzheimer's presentation yeah uh, and, and i mean it's important to just explain that that these really are 
I suppose, in a way, theoretical constructs, you know, and this area of research is really relatively new. So these are kind of constantly evolving in a way. Um, but to distinguish between brain reserve uh, and cognitive reserve, if you think about brain as the structural stuff, the brain reserve, so it's the gray matter, the white matter, the thickness of your cortex, cortex, um, uh, so it's about actual difference in the brain itself that might explain how one individual has greater tolerance to disease than another. So if you take two individuals, um, and I think I do this in my book, I think I call them Mary and Jane. And if you imagine that they both have the same amounts of plaques and tangles, which are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but Mary has a bigger brain than Jane. So she has uh, literally a bigger brain. It's the one part of your body that it's good to have, that bigger is better, really, in a way. Um, um, uh, so Mary has a bigger brain than Jane. They've both got the same amount of plaques and tangles. But if you think about it, that means that Mary has more brain without disease than Jane. So it's not really about how much disease you have. It's about how much healthy brain you have. So because she's got a larger brain, uh, more healthy brain, it allows her to be more resilient to the effects of the same amount of disease pathology. So she's got more neurons, uh, which are brain cells, and more synapses, which are the connections between um, brain cells, the point at which communication occurs. So she's got more of those to lose before reaching um, what we think of as a critical threshold, at which point clinical symptoms will appear. So I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, and then before I actually move on to, well, no, uh, before I move on to the cognitive reserve, and I think I touched on this earlier with you, we used to think that once that brain loss, once you started to lose size, the size of your brain or, or, or neurons, there wasn't anything you can do about it. But we are learning that, that you can maintain the size of your brain through engaging in activities that promote neurogenesis, which is the growth of new neurons, and neuroplasticity, uh, which is um, a fantastic uh, capacity of the brain to grow new connections and change with learning. But um, obviously, the less pathology you have, the better. <laughs> but lifestyle contributes to this resistance, the ability to have uh, resilience. Um, cognitive reserve, on the other hand, um, refers to the plasticity um, or the flexibility of the cognitive networks in the face of disruption that could be caused by disease or by in injury or aging. So um, I, I think I say in the book, I kind of refer to them as you know, if you think about the brain as the hardware and the, the brain reserve as the hardware and the cognitive reserve as the software. So the cognitive reserve is around how effective and efficiently you use uh, the, the neurons and the connections that you have. And um, that's a, a sort of really as it, it's more about how the brain functions rather than how it's structured. Um, so that that's as best as we explain it now. And it really is just a theoretical, it really is just a theoretical concept to explain this disconnection between pathology and um, clinical manifestations of it. Okay. It, it makes, it makes common sense. Um, but I, I, I can appreciate the, the, 
research must just be snowballing about it and people just getting into that. But it is, it is. And, and I will be honest, you know, um, I, I was over at a conference in um, Maryland um, in uh, September um, and uh, you know, if, if there is any sort of controversy in and around this area, it's, it's around us trying to, you know, really narrow down, um, these definitions that we're using within research so that we can, um, make, make greater progress, but more standardized progress. But I think this is pretty normal in research when you're researching a new area, you know, definitions evolve and and research happens and then you kind of reach a point where you say now are we talking about the same thing is your research paper measuring the same as my research is um and 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 so that's why i you know i say these are i find them very useful constructs in terms of explaining them to the people who come to my talks you know the general public not um not necessarily academic or medical people it just um it helped me understand it. Uh, and as you said, it's not that easy to understand. Um, and I'm, what I'm interested in is um, ultimately explaining things in a way that people can get a concrete grasp of it and then walk away with understanding. That's why I need to do these lifestyle things, because it will help build this reserve. I think even just having it at the sort of in our awareness, because I've heard you previously ask the audience how many of you brush your teeth today and inevitably everyone puts their hand up because it's it's just ingrained into us from childhood but then when you ask the question how many of you done something for your for your brain specifically and then you rightly point out it's like it is the most important thing that's allowing us to even brush our teeth or do any of the other things it, it is it's an odd disconnect i don't know why I don't know why we we don't have this awareness. Is it, have you have you got any ideas I yourself? Know. Yeah, I mean, I do. That's uh, to be honest. I start my talks with that, and it takes you know hands up if you brushed your teeth today, and then um, you know pretty much all the hands go down. Then when you say have you done something consciously for your brain, and sometimes I feel I could just walk off the stage at that point because the penny drops. People go, "Oh my god, that really is just crazy." Um, my, I suppose my own theory around why that might be the case is that um we it's only in recent years we have the technology to look and understand the brain um i think i think to be if if i'm perfectly honest and this might be quite controversial to stay, say i'm not a fan of fan of the term the mind um i believe it's a construct that was created to explain human behavior um, before we had technology to understand that the brain actually, um, you know, is the key driver of, 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 of our behavior. And, 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 and we have, you know, I mean, people think that love and emotion are seated in the heart. Um, you know, and, and that, that continues today. We still say things like, I love you with all my heart, but you love people with your brain. <laughs> you know, you really do because your emotional centers are in your brain. Um, you know, even when it comes to, to making love and, and, and having sex, it's your brain that's secreting the hormones that are involved in those activities. Um, so I think that's part of it is that 
you know, great philosophers were trying to understand the human condition and they came up with constructs like the mind to explain human behavior. Um, and I think they served a purpose. Um, but I think now that we understand the relationship between the brain and behavior, it's time to start actually um, making people aware how their brain works. And also the really exciting thing is that um, your brain is a dynamic organ and that it's your behaviors, your experiences, the life choices that you make that actually shape your brain. And, and to me, that's really empowering. You have huge control over uh, your life, your future, your behavior, your health. If, and, and I think understanding your brain can help to give you that control. Absolutely. So I've been sort of avoiding getting into the actual things that we can do because there seems to be more more than I ever thought we could do for our brains and it's difficult to approach it. But just to, I've just wanted to lay the landscape a little bit about kind of what we're talking about. So we have brains which can be dynamic, they're, they're plastic, we can impact upon the reserve we have, we, we've got kind of ideas about the mechanisms potentially with brain reserve, cognitive reserve. So that's the sort of foundation that we're talking about here. And going through the book, there's chapters on sleep, stress, um, being social, looking after your cardiovascular health, physical activity, even your attitude. All of these massive areas impact upon our brain health. So yeah, it's tricky because there's so much there that I'd like to talk about. But um, if you had to potentially dive into one of those as the biggest bang for buck maybe or one that uh, strikes you as being particularly good for your brain health which one might you choose in the first instance i think i i actually think i would start with sleep to be perfectly honest um and i did have that you know because they're in a way they're all you know contribute hugely um but uh, it's probably why I put sleep in first as, as, as that first chapter. Um, I think it's critical in the time we live in now, particularly because even the World Health Organization has declared a sleep loss epidemic. Um, you know, we're not getting sufficient sleep and we're not getting good enough quality sleep. And we don't need a vaccine for that. This is something that's entirely within our control. Um, and I think... Uh, it's, a, again, one of those things that people don't think a lot about. Why do we sleep? Sleep is uh, it is the most vulnerable activity than, that we as humans can engage in. Um, if you think of it, if we, if we go to sleep, that means predators, anybody can, you know, can attack us. We can, you know, all sorts of terrible things could happen when, when we're asleep. So it must serve a really, really vital purpose if it has survived as a behavior that we have to engage in for hours and hours every single day. And what we know, I mean, we still don't, that's why the brain excites me, you know, it's the final frontier really of the body where we're learning all the time um, uh, about how it functions and how our behaviors impact on it. But what we do know in terms of sleep is um, that when we go to sleep, our brain doesn't rest. It has a huge job of work to do. Um, and there's two critical areas, um, two critical jobs that it engages in that I, I, I would like to mention that I think are really relevant here. Uh, one is that um, sleep is critical for memory and for learning. 
And so when you go to sleep, um, so when you take in information during the day, um, that information is kind of processed through a part of your brain called the hippocampus. So you take in information during the day. And for want of a better word, um, it is your hippocampus acts as a temporary repository. Um, and it's a very, very small part of your brain, deep in your brain, and it's shaped a bit like a seahorse. Uh, and when you go to sleep at night, we see electrical activity in the early part of the night between that hippocampus and the frontal lobes of your brain. Now, the frontal lobes of your brain are what we call um, really like the executive control. They they have links to every other part of your brain. So they really are involved in decision making and um, inhibiting your behavior and in planning and organization, really high, what we call higher order functions that are particular to, to, to humans. And this activity that we see in the early part of the night between the hippocampus and this um, a decision-making part of the brain, we think is a filtering activity because we take in so much information during the day, we can't possibly retain it all. So it looks like that that this active this electrical activity is um, deciding what information we can discard and what information we should keep. Um, I should point out that that hippocampus um, needs to be freed up of the information it's taken in during the day so that it has enough resources to, to function again the next day to take in new information. Um, after that filtering activity, then we start to see more diffuse activity across the entire brain. Um, and what we think that is, is that information that we have decided to keep, that's important to keep, starting to be embedded in the networks in the brain as memories. Um, then, So that's in the early part of the night when the majority of the sleep is non-REM sleep. Then in the later part of the night, which is what I would consider really the early hours of the morning before we wake, when we have more REM sleep, what we see is activity where by what we think is happening is that new information that you've taken in and started to embed in the networks of your brain, being linked with all your previous experiences, your previous knowledge, your previous memories. And that's why we think that when you dream, you have this mad mashup of uh, something that happened today and something from your past or something from a holiday. Um, and it's also why we think that if you get sufficient amount of sleep, in terms of hours and the right quality of sleep, which is sufficient non-REM sleep and REM sleep, you know, that you go through those proper full cycles, that you can wake in the morning with um, insight and ideas and solutions to problems. And as a, as a little takeaway, I'd say to people, um, uh, you know, I often give talks to, to people who are in very sort of high powered jobs and they might stay up half the night trying to solve a problem. And actually what I'll say to them is, look, forget about it. Go asleep. Trust your brain. You have a super brain. It has an amazing capacity to, to do work for you. Just go asleep and let it make those connections and you'll wake up in the morning. Perhaps it might take more than one sleep, but um, you know, kind of let it do its job. So that's one really key role that it has to take. And you need sleep after you've taken information so that you can consolidate memories. Um, but then you need sleep before the next day so that you can learn new things. Do you know? So 
that hippocampus has to be cleared. You have to be refreshed so that you can start to take in new information and take that cycle over again. But the other key thing that your brain does when you're asleep, which is really critical, um, you'll know this, um, you know, as a a medic, during the day, um, your lymphatic system is clearing out all the toxins that are released during the day, metabolic waste through, through, through energy. And that occurs through your whole lymphatic system. And the brain itself doesn't appear to have a, um, a lymphatic system. And whilst it can clear some of the toxins that it produces, it can't be you. It can't do all the complex things that it has to do during the day and clear away its metabolic waste. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the brain is a high energy organ. Um, and so that means it produces a lot of metabolic waste. And so when you're asleep, it's a bit like, you know, if you live in a city, when we go to bed, the, you know, the bin lorries and, and the trucks come around and the street cleaning happens at nighttime when everyone is asleep because it couldn't do it during the congestion of the day. And that sort of happens really in our brains at nighttime. Uh, the toxins have to be cleared away. And um, one of the key toxins that um, it clears away at nighttime is beta amyloid, which is a toxin that's very heavily implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And there is a relationship between poor sleep and risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now, at this point, we can't say the direction of that relationship. We can't say whether it's poor sleep that leads to the Alzheimer's disease or whether the poor sleep is a prodromal, you know, an early, an early sign of the disease. But what we do know is that it is really critical to get your sleep to clear those toxins out and to feel refreshed. You know, if you wake groggy in the morning, you know, you're groggy because you actually haven't um, cleared out toxins or the adenosine, which is your, 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 your sleep inducing chemical hasn't been fully cleared from your system. So um, if anyone takes anything to w- away, it's it's treasure sleep and really make sure that you get enough of it and enough good quality sleep. How much sleep can I get away with as a minimum to get these um, benefits? See, that's the attitude we need to change. Yeah. <laughs> minimum is not good. We should be treasuring it. Um, oh. I mean, obviously, it's the same with anything to do with human behavior. You know, it's going to fall across, a, you know, along a spectrum, that bell curve, you know. But um, really between seven to nine hours, you know, if you're an adult, you know, um, from 20s on on, on to 60s, um, children lead, need a huge amount of sleep, you know, 10 to 12 hours. Teenagers should be getting more sleep. Um than they generally speaking are, but that's, you know, that's a cultural thing we've done in a way. Um, you know, we, we, we do a lot of things for convenience, you know, and, and, um, there's a thing, we have a thing called a chronotype, you know, you know, when, when we feel sleepy and, and when we feel alert and bright and that changes across our lifespan and, um, teenagers are actually at their sharper sharpest later in the day um, and, and quite bright in the evening time. And, and so their natural cycle is actually to go to bed quite late and wake late in the morning. But we're kind of forcing them up out of bed to go to school, um, you know, for nine o'clock uh, when actually their brains aren't really waking up. Um, older adults, on the other hand, as we get older, we actually tend to wake earlier uh, in the day and often I'm sure you'll have come across it maybe in your practice and um, older adults coming in and saying they're having trouble sleeping and they're awake maybe from 5 30 in the morning um and 
that's something that that I would say if you if you have any you know older adults listening or people who you know have a relative who's who's struggling with sleep because they keep waking early in the morning and, and they feel they're not getting enough sleep their 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 chronotype you know their sleep cycle has shifted um and yes they're waking earlier in the morning but actually they need to go to sleep earlier in the evening time. Um, older adults don't need less sleep than the rest of us, but the, the cycle has shifted and they need to listen to that cycle. So um, say if they've always gone to bed at 11 p.m., it may be that they need to start going to bed at 9 p.m. And then it's okay to wake up at 5.30 or 6. They'll, they'll have had a full cycle of sleep. But what tends to happen is um, with a lot of people, they will sit down to watch TV in the evening and they'll have a little nap. Uh, you know, maybe at seven o'clock, they'll nod off a bit. And that nodding off will um, deplete adenosine, which is uh, the sleep pressure chemical in your brain that's saying to you, go to sleep. Um, and, and then that disrupts their ability to get to sleep earlier in the evening. So I have no problem with naps in the afternoon, but naps in the evening time are going to disrupt your sleep cycle. But um, shifting and, and just accepting the fact that you may actually need to go to go to sleep earlier in the evening. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I was terrified when I heard, I think it was Matthew Walker talking about doing lumbar punctures on people who had been sleep deprived um, and with a control group and the levels of amyloid, I think it was, being higher in the people who'd had something like six hours sleep or, or just just marginally less sleep than the other group for, for a week or something like this. And I just thought, flip. No, it's, it's, it really is huge. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is, if you're sleep deprived, um, you're going to eat on average, you know, it, it depends on which study you look at, but between 300 and 600 more calories the next day. Um, so, you know, it contributes to our obesity um, problem. And the thing is, the calories that you will um, crave following being sleep deprived are high fat and high sugar. That's what your body will crave. Um, in addition, if you're sleep deprived, um, you're also going to be more anxious and more angsty, and that can kind of contribute to stress. Stress and sleep have huge, you know, they're they're kind of intertwined. They can they can set each other off. Um, but just being, I'm trying to remember the figures off my head. It's actually in my book, the accurate ones, but it's something very simple like being sleep deprived. You know, having less than six or four hours sleep for just a matter of days, it's not very long, um, is sufficient to put you into a pre-diabetic state. You know, and, and I mean, as you said, Matthew Walker's book, you know, it's it's it it really does try to get, we, we, we have to just somehow get that message across that sleep is like breathing, you know, sleep is like food. We we need it and we need to value it and and um, I'm sure there's even more activities that I haven't spoken about that that sleep is critical for but even those are are are, are well worth just thinking about the sleep issue. Mm. Well, that is that in itself. What you've just given is sort of if people still don't think sleep is a big deal, then I don't know what what else you can say. Um, but. Looking around again, so clearly sleep is is massive, and I think although physical activity for me is a particular interest area, I'm just going to assume that the listeners know that that is 
a very important thing for brain health. Um, so one of the things that I've heard you talk about, and particularly in your book, which gave a bit of a different angle than I've previously heard, is about stress. I've always thought um, a lot of stress is bad for your brain because of cortisol and and all the other bits and pieces, but you actually think that there is a time and a place for stress. Oh, absolutely. So um, stress is not bad in and of itself. Um, again, like any human behavior, they have survived and, and evolved because they serve a purpose. Um, some of the things that you can do, you know, critical to neuroplasticity is uh, learning, challenge, novelty. And if you want to rise to challenge, uh, you know, if you want to do new things and learn new things, you need the stress response to help you do that. Um, and so um, it's critical to have an optimal amount of stress. So it's about finding your own stress sweet spot. Um, and that will be different for everybody. You know, what what excites you might terrify the living daylights out of me. But I think the point is your your stress sweet spot sort of resides um, where you feel comfortable enough just to push yourself beyond your comfort zone, just to take yourself to the next level. Um, stress actually in an acute situation actually enhances memory. But if you become chronically stressed and your stress is poorly managed, um, it actually suppresses neurogenesis, which is the growth of new neurons, and it also um, impairs neuroplasticity. Um, and so that in turn, in terms of function, uh, means that it um, impacts on your ability to learn um, and to remember. And it actually, uh, those combined will, will lead to atrophy or shrinkage of the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that is just critical for learning and memory. And it's also a part of the brain that is um affected um, by Alzheimer's disease. So managing stress um, is critical. And, you know, there's very little that we can do about objective stressors. Uh, you know, if somebody you love dies, if you have money troubles, um, you know, they are inherently stressful events. There isn't anything that you can do to change those things, but you do have a certain amount of control over how you respond to those stressors. Um, and the thing is, you know, if you become chronically stressed, what happens is really your brain changes how it functions. And you move from, I should go back a bit, in, in, in terms of the stress response, you kind of have a slow and a fast response <laughs> uh, to kind of oversimplify in a way. And that's you, there, there's, um, a slow route to your amygdala, which is your, your stress center, your fear center. Um, and there's a fast route. Um, the fast route is when sensory information. So, you know, the noise of a car speeding down a road or the roar of a lion, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, that information is processed through your thalamus and straight to your amygdala for a response, to jump out of the way of the car or run like mad if you think somebody's chasing you. And then there's a slow route, 
where um, it ultimately the information goes to your amygdala, your fear center again. But before it goes there, that information is sent to your frontal lobes, which if you remember from, from earlier when I was talking, actually can uh, um, make judgments about information that it is taking in. And um, that part of your brain has the capacity to make a decision and decide, is there actually a real threat here? Um, uh, and so if there is a real threat, let's ramp up uh, the stress response, the physiological stress response. Um, or if there's actually no um, threat here, send a message to say, you know what? There's no threat here. False alarm, calm down. And the example I kind of use in my book is... Um, and it actually happened when I, when I was writing was I was upstairs in the in the house and I was writing and I could hear a noise downstairs. And the minute I could hear the window downstairs, bang. And literally, instantly, I could feel my fingers tingling, my heart going up. And I'm going, oh, my God, someone's after coming into the house. And I'm upstairs and I'm going, oh, and panic setting in. And, and you literally upright and just almost frozen. And then obviously the slower response kicks in and I kind of went, what was the noise? What was the noise? It was the window. It was the window. Oh my God. When I was cooking earlier, I burned something, I opened the window and then I forgot to close the window when I came in. Now the wind has got up and it's after making the window bang. And so I can go, okay, start to slow down. You know, no need for response. It's, it's, it's a false alarm. Um, now, that's kind of if your stress response system is working healthily. Um, if it's become chronic and not working properly, what happens is um, the areas of your brain, the amygdala, that are responsible for the fear response and ramping up the fear response, um, they actually, um, neuroplasticity is enhanced in those areas. So the connections become stronger. Um, and actually what happens is neuroplasticity in your frontal lobes um, is shut down um, and, and also in your hippocampus. So you move from the ability to have slow, measured, rational responses to always having that immediate um, fight or flight response um, that is absolutely brilliant in an instant where you are actually, you know, you need to save your life and jump back from that car that's speeding along the road, but is just utterly detrimental um, in everyday functioning because you'll start to see threat where there's none. Your whole view of the world starts to become distorted and it will start to interfere with your sleep. You'll be getting cortisol spikes in the middle of the night and um, it just becomes this vicious cycle. But I think it helps um, if people start to understand that that's what's happening in your brain um, to then kind of say, okay, that's just the, because my amygdala is is hyper responding. I actually need to just work on trying to bring that down and restore balance and get my system working properly. Mm. I, I think the fact that humans are, well, they seem to be the only animal that can just work themselves up into an absolute stress frenzy just by sitting and just cogitating versus other animals that have a very appropriate stress response to a predator or something. I think we're sort of um, hamstrung a bit there. 
I think, and I think that's really important to understand is, you know, we have a psychological stress response. So the physiological stress response I'm talking about is that heart racing and all that stuff. But your, that physical, physiological stress response kicks in whether the, the stressor is real or imagined. So we have the capacity to imagine, you know, um, our loved ones dying, you know, every moment. If somebody's late or hasn't returned a call, we can catastrophize and we'll have the exact same stress response. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at creatures like, um, you know, swans, they mate and they pair for life and they grieve dreadfully when they lose their partner. Um, but they don't imagine that loss <laughs> across their lifespan. They enjoy the moment and they live and love in the moment. But we, that capacity of thinking about um, different eventualities has given us an evolutionary advantage because we can figure out the actions of, you know, predators or all sorts of things. But it has also had a negative impact on our mental health because it gives us that capacity to imagine futures that may never happen and cause us distress. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry for the sort of sporadic jumping around and picking and choosing from all the different things of your book. There's just so much to get into there. So I'm just having to be a bit um, of a bird's eye view here. But the other thing that stood out to me was about, and I've had a previous guest on, Dr. Jonathan Sullivan, who essentially coaches powerlifting to geriatric populations, elderly adults, and he came up with this idea of um, apo human apoptosis, which is sort of aging in a sense of giving up of um, uh, shrinking horizons, not really seeing that you have any potential left. And I saw some of that resonating with your book as well, where you wrote about our attitudes about aging and how they can be quite self-sabotaging and detrimental um i found that really interesting would you be able to just speak a little bit about that sure um uh yeah i mean the, the thing that i say is your your brain is constantly changing and it's your behaviors your experiences and the life choices that you make that shape at any at any age and an attitude is just a human behavior thinking is a human behavior and as i just we we just spoke about there just thinking about something stressful can induce a stress response so it is really really powerful um people who um have positive attitudes to aging live on average seven and a half years longer than people with negative attitudes to aging. You know, it's, it's, it's really quite incredible. The power, um, the power of our thoughts and, and, and our, um, and our attitudes. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of critical to get that across. I, I think that, um, you know, we tend to think of, those kind of things as I, I don't even know the right word to, to, to use to describe them, but not as something, um, concrete or something that could have sufficient power to impact on, on our health, our well-being. But, um, it does what you, what you think matters and how you think matters. And, and whilst it's not my area of research, but 
you know, having a positive attitude can impact your prognosis with something like cancer. Um, so it is hugely powerful. So be very, very careful how you think. And, and I think be very careful how we think about aging. Um, I think we live in a very, very ageist society. Everywhere you look, um, uh, in Western society, it's very peculiar to Western society. We, we, we put youth on a pedestal and, and, and it's the one thing that we can't hold on to. Um, and I'm not sure it's something that we should even be aspiring to, to hold on to because, um, you know, with age comes wisdom, with age comes understanding. I, I have to say, with every decade, um, I've started, I've enjoyed life more. Um, you know, and I would say to anyone who's in their twenties, that's one of the toughest decades. Your teens and your twenties are pretty damn tough. You're trying to figure out life. You're trying to figure out who you are and what you should be doing. And you're trying to live up to expectations you've created for yourself. And actually, as you go through life, you start to, um, you know, realize what's important and who you are. And you start to learn not to sweat the small stuff and, as you get sort of to my age now where I've realized that I've lived longer than I've left to live, you start to really value every single moment and you start to make sure that every second counts. And so you become much more focused on, well, at least certainly I have much more focused on what I spend my time on and doing, ensuring that I'm doing stuff that matters to me. Um, and for me, you know, it's important to make a difference. This is, you know, I've kind of found something I'm passionate about and I get great, um, I get, you know, great joy and pleasure and satisfaction out of spreading this information. I don't believe in altruism. You know, I get a buzz out of doing that, you know, out of making a difference and giving people information. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think because of ageism, people have, a really negative attitude to growing old. Um, I think society in, reinforces that. Uh, I mean, I hate the, the word retirement. Um, I actually was speaking to someone the other night uh, and they said, let's replace retirement with renaissance. Uh, and actually, I think that's wonderful because what I try to say to people when I'm talking, particularly I can give some talks about aging and positive aging, um, you know, to see that time after retirement um, as as a new beginning. Um, and I don't mean that in, in any light sort of way. I mean it in a really, really um, practical way. You know, when you reach that point, with a bit of luck, you've paid off your mortgage, you've raised your kids, um, it's for the first time in your life, you're actually probably able to focus on yourself. And I would say to people at that point, start, um, go back to what your dreams were, go back to those things that you put on the back burner because you, you know, you couldn't travel because you were raising kids or you hadn't, you know, and start looking at what, what are the dreams? What, what are the things that I've always wanted to do? Um, and, you know, really, really start to set goals and targets and challenge yourself because uh, if you don't do that, your brain will just continue to shrink and, and you will self-fulfill that prophecy of, you know, I'll start to decline with age. But, um, I missed some of your introduction, um, to that, 
person that you were talking about, but um, uh, there are so many inspirational older people out there. I write about just a handful of them um, in my book. But the, the, the thing about ageism, and, and as you mentioned there, we tend to, or we can tend to start to conform to what society expects of us at a certain age. And that can make us engage in self-limiting behaviors. So, for example, um, we actually, we tend, we, we see it as polite, you know, get up and give an older person a chair, tell them to sit down. Oh, don't get up. I'll make that for you. You know, and, and, and people start thinking, you know, in retirement, oh, you should just be taking it easy and sit back and relax. And, um, people don't exercise and people think that their muscles atrophy because they age their muscles atrophy because they don't use them. And, you know, there's lots of examples out there of, you know, older adults in their 90s. There's a woman I mention in my book, Ernestine, and, you know, she's a personal trainer and, and, and at 82, she just doesn't have a six pack. She kind of has an eight pack, you know. Um, I'm not saying that everybody has to go out there and do that, but um, we can achieve huge amounts in later life. And there's there's lots of role models out there. Unfortunately, the, the media, um, and I do think we need to start calling out ageism in the media, um, in films, etc., we older people tend to be caricatures. Um, but also, when we read about older people in the press, it's usually in the context of them being frail or elderly, or they have dementia, or you know they're they're in hospitals and and you know it's all that negative. If you look at it, sorry, that's a WhatsApp message coming in. <laughs> um, if if you actually put it in perspective, only about 6% of older adults are in need of full-time care. Only about 6% of the population are are frail. The rest are doing quite well and could probably be doing even better um, if they, you know, challenge themselves. But I, I think as well, a, a key message to take out there as well is actually older people are happier um, than middle-aged people and younger people. Um, older people are less depressed and less anxious. Um, and, um, you know, they're all positives. Yes, we have more wrinkles and yes, we have gray hair. But, you know, at the end of the day, after a certain period of time, you know, with good friends, with partners, you stop seeing what somebody looks like and and you start to see who they are. Um, and... Well, I kind of think that's important. Sorry, I don't know if I went off on it. <laughs> that was perfect. I think it's something that I have noticed as well, having been to um, China a few times and seeing the difference there because there is sort of a a bit more of a reverence for the older generation and you have a kind of student-teacher relationship in a lot of um, parts of the culture. Um, there are exercise parks everywhere which are just populated with 80-year-old, 90-year-old doing things that I've never even seen before. And it's completely, on the one hand, baffling because it's just so novel to see. But there, it's just another another common sight that you'd see on every street corner. It's, it's a completely different 
um, a way of approaching aging out there. So yeah, and 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 I I think in Western society we've got it wrong. We we really have we sort of put older people out to grass in a sense, and we think we're being kind by doing things for them. Um, But actually, if you look at blue zones, you know where people live to to being over a hundred in 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 the in good health and and in good mental um standing yes more of us are going to live till we're 100 but unfortunately we're we're going to be chronically um unwell unless we do something about that um but if you look at those cultures like Okinawa in Japan number 1 they've no word for retirement um number 2 um they they do exactly what you're talking about they just keep on they all have purpose they all have meaning in their life and um they continue doing what they're doing and they work and they exercise and they 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 you know they grow plants they 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 do whatever um and and I think that's critical I I I think having purpose and meaning in your life um is really really important and I think retirement and western society can take that away from you and and um I hear that often from talks that I give from people in the audience about them saying they feel invisible and they feel undervalued and underused and um i think you just said there about mentoring you know um older adults are um a wealth of experience and wisdom and we need to tap into that and likewise older people can learn huge amounts from younger people we just we just don't have enough contact between the generations um in our culture mm. um i'd love that to change yeah, no, I'm completely on board with you there. So the, as always, these really powerful sort of physiology altering, life altering things do tend to be at the foundation quite simple. We need to sleep better. We need to manage stress, but challenge ourselves enough to, to reap those rewards. Um, we need to, you know, cultivate meaningful relationships. Uh, we need to look after our, ourselves physically, our cardiovascular system, and be aware of our attitude. With all these things, that seems to be the way forwards for getting the most out of our brains that we possibly can. And it sounds so remarkably simple. Your book has been fantastic in giving the why as well, and also the how. So I will recommend this book to any listeners. 100 days to a younger brain just get a deeper understanding because we've really only touched on just a fraction of what is available in that book and also professor brennan's uh, videos online the animations as well which i will put in the show notes to point people towards was there anything else that you wanted to just sort of end on any any other messages that you might want to share now um well thanks a million for inviting me on um i suppose just to to, to kind of what we've suggested in context because a lot of what we talk about those tips are people sort of say oh yeah well you know people people tell us to do that all the time so to put it in context there's currently 50 million people living with dementia globally and that figure is set to treble uh, by 2050 now Third, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. There's currently about 34 million people living with Alzheimer's disease. And we now know that 30% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease are potentially attributable to just seven modifiable risk factors. 
So maybe that and those risk factors are, are, are really kind of the things that we're, we're talking about. Low levels of physical education, low levels of physical activity, low levels of education or mental stimulation. Um, here's where the heart health comes in. Type 2 diabetes, uh, midlife obesity, um, midlife hypertension, depression. That's where attitude and managing your stress is relevant um, and smoking. They're all lifestyle factors. And just imagine if we could manage those seven lifestyle factors, we could potentially reduce um, the incidence of Alzheimer's disease by 30%. I mean, that's huge when you consider the numbers um, that, that are currently affected. That is massive. Where can people find you? Um, uh, the simplest way is probably sabinabrennan.ie. Um, yeah. Okay. And then find links out to all the various oh and please follow me on twitter i loads more followers on twitter um and i'm at sabina underscore brennan well thank thank you so much again for for your time and for sharing everything that you've said today um about brain health and what we can do about it thanks a million thank you very much for listening to this episode i think what i've taken away from this is that there is a reassuring amount of influence that we do have over our brain health because i don't know about you but one of the things that most terrifies me about aging is the prospect of losing my cognitive functions of dementia so i think it is weird that we don't seem to have this awareness about our brains as sabina and i discussed but again it seems to just boil down to the basics and doing them well behaviors such as enough physical activity you know sleeping enough managing our stress as best as we can cultivating those relationships meaningful social connections and keeping a bit of a check on our attitude you know granted these are all things which are much easier said than done nobody's debating that but at least we're not doomed by our genetics as perhaps we once thought so you know thanks again for listening if you found this podcast or any of the other episodes uh, interesting then i'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast if you share it uh, leave a review and i always love to hear from people so do send me any thoughts comments or questions to my email which is julian at strongermedicine.com look forward to chatting again with you guys at the next episode take care